Good evening, and thank you for tuning in to Exposure. I'm Abby Newton, and it's good to be back on the radio waves after being in Peru for three weeks. Now, before we get started tonight, I would like to say thank you to our producer, Gabriela Saldivia, for taking over the show while I was gone. Now, it does feel a bit odd to be back in the States, but I'm so grateful for my experiences. For those who didn't know, I was in Peru for an expedition with the organization Impossible to Possible. I, along with four other ambassadors, ran a marathon a day for six days to inspire young kids to reach beyond their perceived limits as we reach beyond ours. We also created an educational curriculum about ecosystems along the way. Now, before I left, I talked with our general manager, Ed Glazer, about my excitement and expectation for the expedition. Today, I again turn over the host mic, but this time to Gabriela Saldivia. She asked me about the trip, the experiences, the country, and the culture of Peru. So, Abby, yeah. you just returned from a two- or three-week-long trip. About two and a half weeks. Two and a half weeks. Um, I know we talked about it on Exposure, so for our listeners that have been tuning in for the last couple of weeks, uh, we mentioned what Abby was doing, but why don't we hear it from her mouth, what she has been up to? Okay, so for the last two and a half weeks, I have been in Peru. Uh, so it was my first time traveling internationally, but what I did is, through this organization called Impossible to Possible, which is a nonprofit organization. Uh, we ran a marathon a day for six days. So what we are trying to do is inspire, empower, and educate kids through our actions. So the whole premise was to challenge ourselves mentally and physically so we could inspire young kids to do the same. But we went beyond just the running, and every day we did some type of education. Uh, so the whole idea was experiential learning we were creating this experiential learning program. So we were going into the rainforest, we were going in Peru, and we went through eight different ecosystems as we ran. And then we looked at these ecosystems, looked at the services it provides, and looked at how humans impact them, uh, and then provided this education service to kids. So we would shoot video, we would talk to the locals, we would do interviews, as well as um, have experts along the way. And through this, I learned a tremendous amount about the rainforest, about gold mining, about coca leaves, about you know potatoes, about all kinds of different different ecosystems we ran through. And so I not only learned about that, but I learned about the culture of Peru in this way. So we tried to share that with the kids as we went along, as well as teaching them how to be resilient and the importance of resiliency along the way. So did you know before going on the trip that it, I mean, we talked a little bit about this earlier, you and mm -hmm. I did, that going on the trip at, to begin with, you thought it was a lot about the running. That's mm -hmm. the first thing that smacks you in the face. But um, even I looked at some of the videos and did some research on your on the organization Impossible to Possible, and it seemed like it had a huge emphasis on science and like mm -hmm. ecosystems, like you just said, like you mentioned all those things, potatoes and learning about the cocoa leaves and stuff. Did you know that that was going to be a big part of your trip? I think you know you know that going in because it's one of the platforms is to educate, but I didn't realize uh, the I guess intensity that it, the education platform was going to be. So I think going in for the last three, four months, we've been training for the running, you know, so that's your focus every day mm -hmm. for the last three, four months, we've been doing some type of physical activity to train for the running. And then once a week, we'd have a conference call to talk about the education portion a bit. Uh, but it was still hard to grasp until we got there. So once we got there, uh, that became our focus. And I think running uh, was a means to get to this education. So it was a means to, you know, really understand the country and look at the country and see the country while we were trying to educate. So I learned a great deal through the education, and that became the thing that occupied our minds, even while we were running. You know, we forgot we were running because we were thinking so much about, oh, what about this? What about that? Oh, that's cool here in this culture. So I think that really became a big part of our day was the education. Yeah. 
So I know I'm curious. Tell us about the running okay. part. Yeah, so um, every day, so we ran for six days. So we were there for two and a half weeks. Um, but we flew in, and we all, every, there were people from all over the world. So we had Canadians, we had Australians, Italians, um, Americans, all over. And there were five youth ambassadors. So there were two from Canada, two from America, and one from Australia. And so we all flew in, as well as our whole team. So there were about 16 of us. We all got adjusted in uh, Cusco, Peru, was kind of the city that we flew into. So we all got adjusted to the altitude there, because uh, it's at 11,000 feet. And that's where we kind of started. So our body was not adjusted at all, especially coming from Michigan where there's not a hill around. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's difficult because with high elevation and high altitude, it's very difficult to breathe. So we would run up the stairs and feel out of breath. So we're thinking, oh, crap, how are we going to do a marathon a day right. <laughs> feeling like this? Uh, but eventually we made our way to our first destination, which was right outside Manu National Park, which is a pretty much a rainforest. Uh, but we were high in the Andes Mountains. So we started at, again, about 10,000 foot elevation. And day one, um, we were sleeping in tents. So you wake up in your tent about 5 a.m., 6 a.m., and then you have breakfast. And then at 8, you start running. And so all five of us got together. We got our hydration packs. We got our tennis shoes, our visors. And we're like, okay, I guess you go. So you start running. And we ran until about 11, 11.30. And then you have lunch. And then you pick it up again about 1 or 2. And then you run until about 5 or 6. So it's about 7 to 8 hours of running a day. Um, and you tried to hit the marathon was the goal length. But some things would come in and you wouldn't be able to hit that length, for instance, construction. So there was a point in our run, running through the Andes Mountains on this really crazy road, this parapenny, you know, windy road, looking at this amazing views. There were construction and they only let you pass for half an hour during the whole day. So we'd stand there waiting and waiting. And we have to sprint to the next construction site just trying to make it passed in time or else you'd get stuck so um I mean the running it was amazing just the scenery we were running through I think that really helped you keep going because at first you know the first couple of days you're feeling okay and then mm -hmm. the second and third day in the afternoon you're kind of like ooh, I feel my legs a little bit I remember those guys and you're starting to feel those aches and pains um but just looking around you provided such motivation in itself that you just kept going and then the strength of the team, too, really started to develop. And you felt your team getting stronger. And therefore, you kind of felt you yeah. like you were getting stronger, which is a really neat to see. Because we come in as strangers. And then... That's my next yeah. question was going to... Did you... You didn't know these people beforehand. And no. what was it like throughout the trip to um, get to know them? And in this interesting context. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely very interesting getting to know somebody like this. Because, again, you are running with these strangers. But also, you're depending on these strangers a lot to keep you going. And so I think, you know, granted, we had a lot of time together just running about eight hours a day. So we really got to know each other before we started running, during and after. And honestly, I can consider them my closest friends now because when you spend that much time with a person and you're challenging each other in that way, you reach beyond these barriers, beyond these potentials. And it was so evident in the strength of our team that we started to get to know each other more and more because you started to lean on each other as you became tired, as you became weak, or you didn't think you could climb that next hill. You saw your teammate doing it, and then boom, you had inspiration, and literally two minutes later, you're up the hill, and you go, sweet. <laughs> so you definitely saw it, and everybody on our team could feel that dynamic growing and improving along the way. Yeah. So it was a really cool thing to see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, what was the biggest challenge, if you could... Pinpoint Ooh, the biggest challenge, maybe even like a feeling of sure a big uh, moment where you felt really like this is something I'm gonna have to work through. Mm -hmm. I think that was probably two things come to mind um, because during the running we would run through villages. Uh, we would run run two different villages, and so you're kind of on these roads, and everybody comes out of their homes or you know their 
shops and stares at you saying, why are they running? Uh, but then all of a sudden they start clapping. And that was, um, that was really cool. They would just start clapping. And so you just kind of kept pushing and pushing. But I think one of the most challenging parts was uh, we stopped at a school. And we, um, that was one of the most emotional parts because we stopped at this school and we had gotten a bunch of school supplies. So we were giving them the school supplies and just telling them about our mission and about impossible to possible and that anything is possible if you work hard. And so this was at 6 a.m. one morning we went to this school and it was before our run. Um, but it was amazing because we, it was a Saturday. We didn't expect any kids to be there, maybe a couple, a teacher. All of a sudden there's 200 kids just waiting for us, just staring at us, so confused at what we were doing there. And we can speak Spanish, so a couple of us were really engaging with the community and talking and speaking Spanish, and they didn't. They they were just so enthralled by seeing us because it was a small village, and they don't see a lot of tourists. So they were like, who are these Americans? Who are these kids with funny voices, with tall people running? What are they doing? Uh, but we started talking to the kids more and more, and they just kept asking, like, why are you running? And so we had these bracelets, and it said, impossible to possible. And so we would speak in Spanish and hand them the bracelet and say, like, impossible, ah, possible, you know, like, anything's possible if you just work hard. And they all got so excited, so excited. And then this little girl uh, made, a, like, made a poem for us, and she was saying how, thank you for the school supplies. Although it's just an item and we know it'll run out, the message will never die here. And so at that moment, we all just lost it. I mean, we were all bawling just, I don't know what string and what chord it hit, but it definitely hit one. And I think then we realized how lucky we were to be placed in the situations we were and how important it is to continuously remember and appreciate that. And so after that, it was about 8.30 a.m. after all this had happened, but we still had a marathon to do that day. And so Mm -hmm. we were so emotionally exhausted that we had never felt something like that before. So we looked at each other like, whew. So that day was definitely a challenge because you couldn't get those images of those kids out of your head, you know, who were wearing shirts that had English on it, but I had no idea what it was said. You know, just different things like that Mm -hmm. and different moments, but how excited they were just to get that bracelet, to get that pencil. And so it became, it was the most challenging day to start, but during the day it became the most exhilarating because we started to run for those kids. That's what we started to say. We said, okay, guys, this is where we have to step in and do what we can to like improve and solidify this message. So I think that was the day that really stuck with me and it ended up being a fantastic day. I mean, it was, we were worn out, worn out and it was tough, but it was definitely eye opening. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a good, I mean, even now it just kind of gives me goosebumps thinking back to it. So Abby, you mentioned some moments that you really stood out in your brain that were really impactful. And I mean, even you just telling them gave me goosebumps in a way that you make it relatable and that kind of thing. Um, I'm sure that lots of people are asking you now that you're home, uh, tell me about your trip, What mm-hmm. all these kind of questions. Um, just earlier we spoke briefly and you were saying um, what, what I think what the topic of our conversation was, what is it like now? Uh, how do you feel reflecting back on it? Do you feel different? Um, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that. I'm, I'm really interested in how you are doing now. I think, um, you know, it's a, it's a weird question. I think a lot of times, <clears throat> excuse me, people always ask in these type of situations, oh, is it life-changing? And people always use that term life-changing, that hyphenated term life-changing. And I think going into it, we felt like it was going to be life-changing. But then you realize that situations like this, it's not one moment that, boom, your life has changed. I think it's that constant reflection that makes those changes. You know, I think it was weird because we finished our run and it felt so good, but I think we were all waiting for that epiphany moment, like, 
oh, I got it. I understand. Like, it's all clear now. But really, it's thinking back now to those times when you were hurting and you continued or the school or seeing, you know, very poor villages, but realizing how happy and content they were with their situation. Although, you know, maybe we desire for a bigger house and maybe they do too, but they were so happy with how they were. You know, so seeing all these different components definitely makes you have this whole new perspective and this whole new understanding of, holy cow, you know, like we are darn lucky to be placed in the situation we are. But I think when, when I first got there, I felt guilty that, wow, I have, I'm getting an education, you know, I have a home, I have a bathroom that has a toilet seat and toilet paper. It's not just a hole in the ground, you know, so I think at first you do feel that guilt, but then you realize Yes, we are very lucky to be in this situation, but we need to take advantage of that too. Mm-hmm. You know, we definitely need to figure out how to best improve ourselves given the situation we are in so then we can enhance the society around us. So I think coming back, I realized that a lot. I realized that I can definitely improve in myself. You know, not, not to save Peru or save poverty, but to make the best impact I can in this life that I was given. And so I think that's all that anybody can do is constantly assess themselves and improve themselves so they can overall enhance society around them. And so coming back, I realized there's no need to complain about simple little things. I mean, these people in Peru are, you know, they, they grow their own crops and then they try to sell them at the market or they walk, for, you know, six miles to school. So, I mean, there's just little things that their challenges are so great. And, of course, we have our own challenges, but I think it's important to appreciate also what opportunities we are given and not complain about little things or maybe live live more simply. You know, I don't need to get a Starbucks coffee every day. I can have water. Or just, just those little things that make you kind of reassess, okay, what do I need in my life? How can I be the best Abby? How can I be the best Gabby that I can be? So I think that's kind of how I came back was, trying to constantly reflect on this trip and not just have it for the next two weeks. I try my best to be the best I can be, but for the next, you know, however many years, for the rest of my future, I really focus on experience I had during the trip and constantly trying to apply them to my life. Because I feel like I learned a lot, but I don't want to learn to absorb. I want to learn so I can apply. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really what I came back with. And I'm still kind of struggling. You know, coming back and seeing a bathroom for the first time, like a really nice bathroom, I was overwhelmed. So like, oh my gosh, there's tile. This is weird. Why is it so nice? So I think that was weird and just little things and how fast the world moves. Mm-hmm. You know, you forget when you're gone from it how fast it, everything is going and it doesn't stop. So trying to get back into it, but then not... But then also trying to get out of bad habits along the way is, I think, definitely going to be a challenge. Yeah, that seems like a challenge mm-hmm. already. Like, you're saying, I want to live more simply. Yeah. But, I mean, Abby, you have, like, a million commitments and you're, <laughs> you have your hand in everything. Like, mm-hmm. how do you think you're going to face that when you want to be, like, go, going back to how you were before the mm-hmm. trip with a to-do list five pages long and mm-hmm. commitments and people needing you for things that, how are you going to handle that? I think, you know, it's... Because you, you can't walk away from you, you you can't walk away from your life completely, or I guess you can if you want to, but I don't think that's right because you knew like the Abby before the trip loved what she was doing, and I still do love what I'm doing and all the commitments, but I think it's more just appreciating each little thing, so maybe my to do list it comes back and I have it again, of course, I'll probably you know establish a to do list, but it's not stressing over the little things, so it's still smiling when you realize how big it is <laughs> you know it's yeah. it's getting excited to complete it it's getting excited that I'm like growing because I'm doing something I'm learning I'm getting educated not necessarily oh I gotta go to class but 
yes, like it's 6 a.m. I'm going to class and I'm getting an education. Like, this is pretty darn awesome. So I think it's those things, trying to change your mindset in that way. Yeah. Because I think you can really get taken by the wave of to-do lists, taken by the wave of, you know, got to get this done, got to get this done, maximize your time, you know, that kind of thing. But I think it's so important to remember and appreciate what's going on around you at the same time. And I think, too, I learned a lot just from the people we were around because we had a group of guides who were with us the whole time and so they would provide us food and they um, kind of showed us the ropes on where to go so we had a guide truck and the guides would be in there and they'd also have all of our stuff in a van like driving it to our next campsite and so just talking to them about their way of life before they became guides you know one man um, grew a coca and that was a big thing in his family and then he went to the cocaine industry and for them it wasn't to do drugs it was because I had to feed my family and get a job Another man was a miner, a gold miner, and that's terrible for the rainforest. You know, it's causing a lot of harm, but it's their industry. It's a career. It's a job. So talking to these people, you learn so much. So I think that reaffirmed my um, the importance of communication. So I think that's another thing I really want to try to do is listen more and not be afraid to ask the hard questions or ask the questions that really help you understand somebody and put you in that perspective because that's also occupied my mind a lot were the ways of life that we were that the villagers we were passing through you know we were at an indigenous community talking to a medicine woman she's 95 but she still goes in the rainforest every morning trying to find little cures for the ailments of her community you hmm. know and just little things like that it was just amazing and I think it really opened my idea and my eyes to the different ways of life and how everybody's working hard to kind of maximize their situation. Was the trip what you expected? You know, it's funny. Everybody keeps asking me that, and I, I wish I had a better answer, but I honestly had no idea what to expect. Mm -hmm. You know, I did expect my focus to be completely in the running, just, yeah, you know, the grit and the grind right. of mile after mile, kilometer after kilometer. We started counting in kilometers, and I like this a lot better because they go a lot faster. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's I like, funny. ooh, I like this whole metric system. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that was our focus in, in training. You constantly had that thought process. Because they want to prepare you, too. Yeah. Like, they don't want you to feel unprepared when you're there. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. So I think, you know, it, it was not what I expected in that sense because – we were challenged so much more than just this physical and mental, you know, completion. We were challenged to think critically of our surroundings and find solutions for different things that are happening in Peru and raise awareness for different issues, as well as just keep your eyes open to really immerse yourself in a different culture and a different community and a different country. So it's definitely different than I expected, but in a good way, in a great way. Would you do it again? Absolutely. I think I, I'm looking at my calendar now. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Can you do it again? Would they um, let you? Not through that same program uh, but now as alumni you can certainly give back in different ways and I certainly want to because I think the message is there and I want to just try to spread it as much as we can and really kind of unify the message to bring in that resiliency as well as that educational component because there's a lot when, you, when you're experiencing it and then what you can tell people there's a lot more that I think that can be done and it's a young organization so I can see the future have a lot of growth and we can go back on um, next new expeditions and help youth ambassadors and be guide runners or take pictures and those kind of things. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to. But also, I definitely got bit by the travel bug once again. <laughs> so now I just want to travel and go everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of made you reassess, okay, what do I want to do with the rest of my mm -hmm. life? You know, what kind of career do I want to have? It's funny how traveling abroad does that to you. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you did it. You know. It's, it's, it's funny. I feel completely different after I traveled and mm -hmm. got to introspectively see and learn about myself. Right. And and about your country and how other people perceive you and your country. Mm -hmm. You know, because it was interesting. We, um, you know, the kids, whenever we spoke with the kids, like one village we went through, they were all playing soccer. And we were exhausted, but we looked at each other and we said, we got to play soccer with these kids. 
this is awesome. We've got to play. So we stayed for an hour uh, during lunch, and we barely ate any lunch, but we were just bopping around playing soccer, and we got so immersed in the game, and the kids loved it. And they were, oh, they were superb soccer players, but we were talking to them, and they asked, oh, where are you from? And I said, Estados Unidos, you know, the United States, and their eyes just got really big. They go, really? Like, New York? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Los Angeles? I said, no, Michigan? They said, what? <laughs> but, um, you know, they were really excited about it. And I'd, I asked them why so excited, and then they just said it's so different, and there's so much to do. So it's like this cool kind of thing of hope, but then when you talk to adults, you know, they saw America in a different light because they see us as a diplomatic relation, you know, so it's different. And everybody was so different in the perspective of Americans and our country. So it's very important to hear, you know, some people are very critical. Mm -hmm. It was tough to hear because, you know, as an American, you have such pride in your country. So you had to defend it, but then also understand and listen to their perspective. And then you kind of got a new sight, too, on how we can be a better country and how you can be a better almost citizen for your country. Ambassador. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what, yeah. So you forgot that, wow, we are kind of ambassadors here, you know. Yeah. So that was very interesting. One question I didn't ask you that um, I'm thinking, I don't know, we'll see how you respond. Were you ever scared during the trip? Like, not maybe of your surroundings mm -hmm. or the typical, like, thing you would be scared of, but for, for yourself, or, like, did you ever feel discouraged or lost or and how did you deal with that if you did I think there were two two times I probably was most scared um the first was again in another village and there was a village we just played soccer in so we had played soccer with these kids and they the were same one that you're same one about? yep same one so we're playing the soccer with these kids and then our team our coaches then our organizers said okay guys you got to eat you got to refuel for this next you know 20k you're going to run this afternoon okay so we go and eat and we were in this like hut type thing all of a sudden these kids kind of follow us and they are just standing right there behind us watching us eat and they kept saying basura basura you know can we have your trash can we have your trash and so that was I was frightened beyond belief just and I just hit me you know I said oh my gosh like I I couldn't stand I couldn't eat I couldn't swallow I just felt so wrong and I was just so scared that you know, we're so privileged. And that was another time when I just felt guilty and just like, oh my gosh, you know, then all of a sudden you feel this pressure, like I need to do so much with my life because I've gotten such great opportunity. And so I think that's what scared me was I said, oh my gosh, what if, what if, what if I don't do well? What if I fail? You know, and then all these thoughts came into your head, like I've been given so much. What happens if I don't use it all to the best of my ability? So that's what I really struck fear in me was like, oh my gosh, these kids, you know, just it's such a weird feeling. But then again, we kind of drew back. And while we were running, we had a time 20K to think about it. So, you know, four hours to think about what just happened. And that's when I really came to the conclusion that, okay, you know, you got to buckle down and make the best of it because you've right. got this opportunity. I think that's a really relatable feeling mm -hmm. for like a, a privileged feeling yeah. of, and it makes, yeah, it's not, yeah. it's not great. And you can't, I think, again, the first feeling is to feel guilty about it. And then I think that's hu that's a huge detriment if you do continue to feel guilty because you're just wasting that opportunity. You know, so I was really scared in that sense. And then in the physical sense, I was very scared um, the last day. So, <clears throat> excuse me, the last day we did a run through the actual rainforest. So we did a trail run. And um, the rainforest trail run, we had done one earlier. But this one, it was more deep into the rainforest. And it's kind of scary because... You're, the rainforest is very thick, and so you don't see a lot of open spaces, so you're kind of claustrophobic, and the trail is very technical, so there's a lot of rocks. There's, like, straight uphills, and you can't even run. You have to, like, crawl up them, wow. you know? So it was it was scary because I, we felt a lot of pain on day six, and I think a lot of us were like, holy cow, can we, can we finish this? You know, and that thought crosses your head, like, okay, just... 
I'm really tired and worn out. Some snake just bite me, like get it over with. You know, you have those different thoughts that like, just I'm done, I'm done. And then I think I was scared to have those thoughts. So, oh my gosh, like, no, you can't quit. You can't quit. So I was a little scared that I, we, we wouldn't finish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we came together as a team and we were kind of reassessed it. Okay, guys, like we've got five more K or we can do this. And you give yourself a little pep talk and then you just go and you just find that energy within and think of those kids, think of your whole experience and go. But I do remember that ounce of fear. Like, what if we don't finish? Like, what if... What if we can't do it, you know? And I think that's only normal, but it's a matter of how you overcome that and what your thought process is to complete and to finish. So that was, those two moments were when I was most scared, I think. Did you ever feel feelings of like being inside your own head um, and being worried or nervous and things that you just like had to get over? Like, I guess the first thing for me that, I think about when I think about your trip, I'm like, I have a hard time sleeping other places. <laughs> and if I had to like go and sleep in tents in the rainforest yeah. and be like immersed in this totally different world, mm-hmm. I think I would have like some mental issues myself. Yeah. Like getting over that. I think that's a good question. Um, sleeping was okay because you were so tired. <laughs> that's yeah. a really good point. He said, Oh, okay. I just had a nice meal. I had my bit of bread. I, you know, a little soup. I'm good to go. I'm good to sleep. Um, but it was weird because you were sleeping like the first night you were in really high altitude so it was like 20 degrees the last night was like 90 degrees you know so so there's such a swing um but I think hmm I don't think I was I think more than anything my brain was tired you know just because you were thinking so much and on your run yeah you were overstimulated and on the runs you had a lot of time and we talked a lot on the runs our team did uh, when we you know had chances and when we were going at a slower pace we talked and so we talked a lot about and tried to like break it down so we could each understand. And that helped tremendously to kind of vocalize these opinions and these thoughts and, you know, along the way, because it helped you kind of understand. But I think, you know, day four and five, um, people really started feeling pain in their legs. And that was the day one of our teammates had to stop running for a bit because she had tendonitis in her feet. And that's what we found out. So it's just like, ugh. And so I think that day we were, you know, one of our teammates was sitting out. So you start thinking, maybe I feel a lot of pain. Right. You know, and so because it's in your head. Yeah. Yeah, you get in your head. And because once you kind of recognize that there could be a pain somewhere, you start thinking, oh, I think my knee hurts. Oh, (laughs) you know, so you start thinking. And the way we combated that was um, we had a runner, a professional runner with us, and he's from Italy. His name is Stefano, and he's a big Italian. We call him the Italian Spartan. That's what he looked like. <laughs> like this perfectly chiseled man. I mean, really intense and intimidating, this big beard. But he would run, you know, like with this perfect form behind us as a guide runner. And then um, he, one time we had a walk or something the first day, and he kept saying, this is not easy to easy. This is impossible to possible. You know, there's different things like that. And he was that joking, but he was so funny. And he was his character. And he kept saying, what are you, mushroom hunters? You go so slow, like you're looking for mushrooms. You're a mushroom hunter. You know, it's just different things like that. But um, he really helped us and pushed us to go faster. And on day three and four, when we were really struggling, he saw that. And he told us this quote, which is one of my favorite quotes. I think I might have mentioned the interview earlier, but uh, he said, how do an ant eat elephant? I said, what? You know this quote? He said, one bite at a time, one kilometer at a time, 100 meters at a time, one step at a time. So when he said that, we all really were like, yeah, okay. That's we all we do need this, to do. Yeah. Just one step at a time. And then that you know, got you thinking about life and how you can apply that other ways too. So that was really nice. And he was a great help. I mean, he was crazy as I'll get out and goofy and Italian, but he definitely helped us. And so I think that kind of helped combat that is seeing a professional runner like that say it's okay to go one step at a time it's hard take it easy go one step at a time so that's good I think one of the coolest parts again like I said was was talking to the local people and 
really understanding what challenges they face day to day. And I think that's so important that we constantly remember is that everybody's struggling, you know, in different senses, in different realms. And so although everybody's struggle is different and the intensity may be different, it's still there. So I think, you know, through our lives, we really need to constantly figure out how do you overcome those? You know, what thought process will I have? What makes me continue? What's my motivation? Because I think it's so important that people really figure out themselves so they can constantly get better and get better and get better because that's all we can do. And I am... Um, it was neat because we were all so different. The youth ambassadors, we all had different attributes. And the whole I2P team, you know, we had doctors, we had the education team, and everybody came from such a different country, a different place, a different city, and had such different upbringings and education. But somehow we all connected so well. I think it's interesting we all communicated. We all achieved our goals, and we got this finish, and we learned so much together. So it really gave me an excited feeling that, you know, everybody who's different can get along, you know, so as we face diplomatic issues, as we face different things today and struggles, and you realize that, okay, it can be done. You know, however weird people are, however different, there's still a way you can get each other's perspective, understand, and achieve a goal together. So that's what really got me super excited, is seeing a group of people achieve something. And that's what you felt, and you felt part of this team, and you felt so important and included because everybody was so necessary to complete this goal. So I mean, it was a fantastic experience, and I I'm still constantly trying to digest it and figure out what I want to do with it, how I want to consciously change things in my life and keep applying this and, and not to be all this deep emotional experience, <laughs> but you do feel different things that you haven't felt before. You see different things you've never seen before, you know, from the Andes Mountains to the rainforest to wildlife to indigenous communities who work together so hard to self-sustain, you know, to uh, different gold miners living in this poverty. To, it was just amazing. And I think it was a little overstimulating at some point, but then coming back here was overstimulating as well. Just seeing so much, you know, bigger than, so many buildings bigger than tents, so many things just big and grand and trying to figure out kind of how, how to digest it all. So I'm still in that process, but I can definitely say I'm grateful for the opportunity and I don't think this one will leave my mind for a long time. <laughs> Great. Well, Abby, thank you so much for giving us some insight into your trip. I know it's been valuable for me as your friend and coworker <laughs> to hear, but I believe our audience can really relate to what your experience was. Mm -hmm. And maybe you inspired some people. Well, I appreciate today. that. If anybody ever wants to go for a run or anything, then contact me. <laughs> Happy to talk more. Abby Newton, everyone. <laughs> Yeah. 
Welcome back to Exposure. I'm Abby Newton. Again, it is a pleasure to be back on Exposure, bringing you the latest in East Lansing and Lansing news and entertainment. Now, when I was in Peru, we ran through cities, villages, and indigenous communities. Each environment and culture was so incredibly different. But there was one thing that was constant, football, or as we say it in the States, soccer. In each community, we saw children playing soccer on fields of concrete or grass or dirt. It was a wonderful sight, and I was fortunate enough to actually play and speak with them, and they certainly were talented. Now, to celebrate this global activity and understand its impact, our very own Quinn Hoffman delved into the sport and brings us a story about the beautiful game. The most popular sport on earth. Soccer. One of the oldest organized sports, soccer has become somewhat of a universal language around the world. From the streets of Rio de Janeiro, the coasts of South Korea, and everywhere in between, soccer has made its mark. Although it's the world's most popular sport, the U.S. has never seemed to share the same love for the game. But in recent years, it seems to have been gaining some speed. So there's no doubt it's growing. It, it's growing at the youth level, it's growing at the international level, and it's growing at the club level as well. I met up with writer for Football Scholars Forum and PhD student Ben Detmar to talk about soccer in the United States. He writes on American soccer, which often includes topics such as MLS, international soccer, and the rise of the popularity of the sport. After going to a couple of games, it's not hard to see that the fans seem a bit different. Fans and kind of this idea of the soccer hooligan maybe is something that American audiences always pick up on. It's kind of a stereotype of European soccer in particular that people are always interested in. American soccer fans have adopted a style of cheering better known in Europe, waving flags, singing songs, and even lighting off flares or smoke bombs. It's, it's, it's a good thing, they've taken the good elements out of it. And you see that in the MLS a little bit as well. Um, all MLS teams have two or three supporters groups that tend to bring the noise and the color and the atmosphere to, to, to the stadiums. Um, if you go down to Columbus, which is probably the nearest team to here, there's, um, there's three main kind of supporters groups. There's a, a Latino group, um, older supporters, more laid-back supporters, mm -hmm. kind of the crew union, and then there's a group that calls themselves the hooligans. They call themselves the Hudson Street hooligans. And again, they kind of model themselves on what was happening in Europe 20 years ago. You know, they, they will wear bandanas, they'll let off smoke bombs, they'll carry signs, they'll taunt the opposition the entire game. Detroit City FC, a local fourth league professional soccer team, has a fan base in the thousands that show up to each game and cause a bigger ruckus than most people would expect. Yeah, I mean, Detroit City is a great example because it, it's on a much smaller scale. And um, the, so the people behind those um, groups, firms, whatever you want to call them, 
you know, they're, they're incredibly influenced by, by kind of the, the old European t- um, supporters, w- without a doubt, and the Rowdies as well. But it's, At a local MSU soccer game, I met up with Michigan State alumni and current Detroit City FC captain Josh Rogers to talk about soccer's recent rise in popularity. Um, I think it's it's growing. I think being here in East Lansing, seeing the Red Sea Rowdies, I think it's just what this country is doing. I, you go to Kansas City at um, Sporting, you see that the Hell's Den, I think it's called. Um, I think it's really growing. America's uh, really taking in this game, and I think it's only going to keep growing. He shares the concern with Ben that the U.S. has the numbers in youth, but fails to keep the kids involved with the sport. We have so many youth players in this country to where um, every family grows up around the soccer field, so, so it's, that's how it's going to go. Even here in East Lansing, soccer fans flock together, going by the name the Red Cedar Rowdies. Alex Byers explains. Uh, the Red Cedar Rowdies, along with Luke Ferris, uh, we help get all the props and stuff ready. We lead the cheers, we lead the chance for the soccer team. Basically, we're all here to support MSU Athletics, first and foremost, Michigan State soccer. Although the number of fans don't even touch American football or basketball, popularity is on the rise. Whether it's local games or the World Cup, there's no question, America has been watching more soccer. The question now is, is it here to stay? For Impact News, I'm Quinn Hoffman. This is Abby Newton, and you are listening to Exposure on Impact 89FM. Now, this week is National Geography Awareness Week, in which Michigan State University is celebrating the discipline and its impact. We invited Professor Alan Arbogast into the studio to talk about the week and an exciting event that will be held tomorrow night at Wharton Center. Impact's Gabriela Saldivia has the conversation. My name is Alan Arbogast. I'm the uh, chairperson of the Department of Geography here at MSU. So, can you tell us a little bit about Geography Awareness Week? Geography Awareness Week is a national event that occurs about this time every year. The purpose is to raise awareness about geography as a discipline, 
to the nation as a whole, but here locally to the MSU campus. Geography is not a discipline that folks understand very well. They have a tendency to, to think of it as being very sort of simplistic and trivial with things like the capitals of states, where the rivers are, uh, names of mountains, that kind of thing. Uh, but it's a lot more holistic and integrative than that. And we believe that the geography is actually a very important discipline that uh, folks should be aware of, both for just overall purposes, but here within the department to uh, let students know that good opportunities exist there for excellent jobs after they graduate. The MSU Department of Geography is semi-new, isn't it? Actually, it's been around since the 1950s. Oh, wow. Yeah, and we've been... We've had kind of a low profile over the years. Uh, geography is one of those disciplines, again, keep talking about disciplines, but where we have a tendency to sort of uh, be kind of passive about uh, folks being aware of us. Uh, in the last couple of years, we've tried to be mo- much more proactive to actually get our word out, get the name out, to let people know that we're here. And uh, we hope that that uh, raises the awareness. And it sounds like just by the questions that we're having here that that's, that's, uh, it's working. What events do you have this year that are happening around campus? The primary event that we're doing is we're bringing in uh, a very well-known environmental artist. His name is Chris Jordan, uh, who is going to speak at the Passant Theater at the Wharton Center on Wednesday night. Uh, this is an event that's open to the campus, and he's, he's coming with the idea of of talking about social science and geography specifically and how it influences the kind of work that he does. Uh, He's interested in sort of bringing attention to uh, consumption and geographical patterns associated with consumption here in the United States and around the world. And, um, you know, he's he's been featured in a variety of well-known places. He's done a TED Talk, for example, and we're pretty excited about bringing him here. So um, why Chris Jordan, besides those couple reasons that you just gave, like when you were deciding who to have come? Yeah, we're kind of new at this. And last year, we brought uh, Jeff Orlowski, who is the uh, director of the well-known Chasing Ice documentary that, that uh, we hosted in the spring. This year, we thought, well, what we want to do is we want to have a keynote speaker like that uh, sometime during the course of the year. And Geography Awareness Week would be the best time to do it. So now from now on, we're going to do these kinds of things every year during, during this time of year. Um, Chris is one of those people that uh, has a pretty high profile. Um, we ha- I had two or three people in my faculty suggest him uh, as a potential speaker uh, during our event. Uh, I kind of rolled the dice, gave him a call, and sure enough, he's coming. Okay. So for those listeners that don't know, can you tell us a little bit about his work in a little more depth? Yeah, he, he's, uh, he's an interesting guy. Uh, he, he lives in Washington, and I guess he was a lawyer at once upon a time in a former life. Uh, but he became very uh, interested in the environment and how we impact the environment in subtle ways that we really can't imagine. Uh, for example, he, 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 he became known to me uh, because of his very uh, compelling work on Midway Island uh, looking at albatross, their, their birds, um, in the Central Pacific. Now, his theme is the impact that plastic is having in a very, very remote part of the world in a way that we don't, um, can't imagine. Um, 
and we all use plastic. Of course, we do a pretty good job around here about recycling, and we're, that's very high on the conscious uh, of people here at MSU, and that's excellent. Um, but maybe not necessarily around the nation as a whole and certainly around the world. The geographical element to his work with respect to the albatross is that Midway is out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. There's a feature out there called the North Pacific Gyre, which is like a giant eddy in the northern Pacific. And plastic has accumulated there from shorelines along the Pacific Rim. Now, what's happening is that the plastic is breaking down into small pieces. Uh, apparently, every square mile of the ocean has something like 47,000 pieces of plastic in it, which is an amazing thing. Wow. And the adult albatross are flying out over the ocean to look for food for their, for their young. They see plastic floating. They think it's food. They take it back to their babies. They feed their young the plastic, and then, of course, the, the young albatross, uh, they die, unfortunately. So Chris became aware of that, and he went out and did a photographic essay of the albatross with the idea of raising awareness for people about these unintended consequences of plastic consumption mm -hmm. and how we dispose of it. Another example, he has a great website called Running the Numbers, where he has created sort of uh, uh, what I think of as being sort of impressionistic art. Yeah, I looked into it as well, and it's very impactful. It is. Yeah, his art. Yeah, so you know about it then. Yeah, um, I've done a little bit of research on him because I just thought it was really interesting. Um, also, the documentary, the Midway documentary, watch sure. the trailer, and the images that are shown in, about the albatross and all the plastic inside their stomachs, mm -hmm. being able to actually visualize that is frightening. I guess, you know, Chris is going to speak in, in a couple of our classes on Wednesday. Uh, he's volunteered to do that. And what he would want to know is how does that make you feel? Yeah. Look, looking at those images of all the plastic in the stomachs of those birds. Right. Um, really wakes you up to the realities of what's happening. Yeah. And stuff that you just ignore. Right. And that's his whole point. You know, for example... Um, we burn 260,000 gallons of gasoline in our cars in the U.S. Uh, what is it? What's his, uh, you know, every minute or something like that. It's just an, it's an amazing amount. And he has created uh, an image of uh, what looks like a junkyard. But then when you click on it, you've probably seen the stuff where it zooms in mm -hmm. and it's, it's car keys, you know. Um, we, he also has a, has another piece that is made of mail order catalogs, 10,000 mail order catalogs, which is the number that are printed, disposed of every three seconds in the United States, you know, junk mail. Right. So, you know, he's trying to find a way to show us, to kind of relate these very large numbers, which are hard to get your head wrapped around mm -hmm. in a way that you can see it visually. Right. And easy to just overlook. Yeah. Those huge numbers just—they're not relative to you. But when they're put in such a way that is digestible, and you can say, "Oh, wow, that's a mail order catalog. I get three of those a week in my house," and then you think about everything else that goes along with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 so, you know, he's for us—he's going to talk about how geography impacts his work and how geography is related to the kinds of things he's thinking about. We're pretty excited about it. Uh, I I feel like. What we're doing, you know, just based on this interview here, I feel like what we're doing is raising awareness. Um, I mean, you asked me the question very, at the very beginning, you know, is the Department of Geography new? 
you know, in, in the United States, of course, you know, you got to sell yourself, right? Right. And that's what we're trying to do. And we're trying to raise awareness uh, to students that geography is a really exciting discipline, one where, you know, we have excellent faculty that, that span the gamut of, uh, of a variety of really interesting things. We have people working in geographical information science, remote sensing, human geography. Medical geography is a very growing field, you know, that has to do with, you know, uh, we have a, a, one of our faculty, Dr. Grady, who's working on baby birth weights in, in Michigan and the geography of baby birth weights and what are the factors, the environmental and social factors that influence baby birth weights. So if you're interested in health and you're interested in where things are happening, then, then medical geography is a place to go. Personally, I study sand dunes along Lake Michigan. You ever been over there? Yeah, I'm actually from West Michigan, from Grand Rapids area, but we spent a lot of time on the coast. All right, so up. so you know those dunes? Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, running up and down them all the time. Right. Well, I'm interested in in why the dunes are there, where the sand came from, how they're going to change geographically and spatially in the future, what their age might be how it relates to overall climate changes that have occurred in the past and might occur in the future. Uh, we have people that are interested in, in urban systems and traffic patterns and, and, and uh, you know, criminal geography hmm. would be an exciting place to go. So there are lots of opportunities in the field. Our, our students are getting gainfully employed when they're done, and we're just trying to make people aware of that. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Had a blast. It's always fun to do Looking these things. Looking forward to the event. All right. Be sure to be there. Come stop your crying. It will be all right. Just take my
Now, today is also a very important day in history. It is the 150th anniversary of the Gettysburg Address. According to CBS News, thousands of people gathered on a central Pennsylvania battlefield park today to honor the speech that President Abraham Lincoln gave. The speech was to reinforce and instigate the national ideals of freedom, liberty, and justice during the Civil War. To celebrate the speech and what our president, Abraham Lincoln, in this country now stands for. I read it to you today. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it, far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note, nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Again, that is the Gettysburg Address recited by Abraham Lincoln on November 19, 1863. If start again with just my children and my wife I thank my lucky stars to be living here today cause the flag still stands for freedom and they can't take that away and I'm proud to be an American where at least I know And I won't forget the men who died, who gave that right to me. And I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee, across the plains of Texas, from sea to shining sea, from Detroit down to Houston, 
And that is all we have here tonight on Exposure. Thank you for joining us. Special thanks to our producer, Gabriela Saldivia, our station manager, Sam Riddle, and our general manager, Ed Glazer. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next week, I'm Abby Newton, Impact 89FM.